Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kid Kong at the Movies. I am your host, once again, the one and only Kid Kong. And today, we're going to be mainly discussing Men in Black from 1997. Now, the reason I say mainly discussing Men in Black from 1997 is I am actually going to talk about 2 and 3, and I'll explain why in a moment. It was directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, who also directed one, er, 2 and 3 as well. Barry Sonnenfeld is probably best known for directing Adam's Family and the Adam's Family Values, as well as Get Shorty in the Wild Wild West. He's a frequent collaborator with Will Smith, amongst others, uh, Raul Julia, Carol Stroykin, etc., etc. It was produced by Walter Parks and his spouse, Laura McDonald, who, between the two of them, they have done California Reich, Minority Report, Gladiator, AI Artificial Intelligence. They were executive producers on Little Giants, Two Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Love Julie Newmar, The Mask of Zorro. And in addition to that, the two of them helped to build both DreamWorks Entertainment and Amblin Entertainment. That's pretty, that's pretty huge for that. Now, the first movie was written by Ed Solomon, who is probably best known for the Bill and Ted series, but he also wrote the Super Mario Brothers movie, which we have covered in a previous episode. Go ahead and check it out in the library if you haven't yet. Uh, the second movie, Men in Black 2, was written by Robert Gordon and Barry Fanaro. Now, Robert Gordon is probably best known for Galaxy Quest and Sky Captain of the World of Tomorrow, while Barry Fanaro has also written Kingpin, and I now pronounce it Chuck and Larry. Third movie was written by Eaton Cohen, who has directed or written for rather, I'm sorry, Tropic Thunder, Madagascar 2, Escape from Africa, and Idiocracy. Men in Black, the first movie, was produced on a budget of $90 million and raked in $589.4 million at the box office. Number two was for a budget of $140 million, so that's a $50 million budget increase, but it only made $441.8 million at the box office. And the third movie, of course, was made... Um, now, sources differ on this, but it's either between $205 million to $225 million, or between $215 million and $225 million. And its box office return was $624 million. So while it made more than the other two at the box office, it cost more to make. But I will explain how that's significant in a little bit. Of course, this is based on a comic series, which a lot of people don't know nowadays because the comic series was a limited one done a long time ago. And the reason why I want to cover all three movies in this briefly is because really and truthfully, all three movies, co uh, they cover an overarching story that really starts in one and has bits and pieces in two and in three. Of course, in the first Men in Black movie, Will Smith's character, who becomes Agent J, is recruited from the NYPD to join... The Men in Black, which is a team that they refer to as the first and last line of defense between the worst scum of the universe. Recruited by Agent K, played by Tommy Lee Jones, who, while he initially thinks he's just being trained as a partner, he's actually being trained as a replacement. The second movie, the, uh, the synopsis comes around in that there's something going on that they need Agent K for because he's the only one who knew it. They have to go and de-neuralize him and bring him back to the Men in Black so that they can take care of this. They end up taking care of that. And then in the third movie, a villain who Agent K had put away years ago has escaped from his intergalactic jail and has messed with time to kill Agent K and prevent him from being alive at that point. However, Jay is caught in a time loop on this due to a connection with his own past and it explores it through there and eventually he writes that wrong as well. Now I'm actually going to give you the cast for all three movies. However, 
it is important to note that the majority of the cast is the same in Men in Black, Men in Black 2, and in Men in Black 3. There are a couple of exceptions, and I will get to them. In movies 1 through 3, Agent J, also known as James Edwards III, is portrayed by Will Smith. Now, if you don't know what Will Smith has been in, you've been living under a rock. But I'm going to go ahead and give you a list of them anyway. Of course, he's probably best known for being in Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, as well as the Bad Boys franchise. But he's also been in Ali, which is a biopic about Muhammad Ali, Wild Wild West, The Pursuit of Happiness, Independence Day, I, Robot, I Am Legend. He was in the Disney's live-action remake of Aladdin. He's been in a lot of things. He's been nominated for multiple Academy Awards. And just in general, I mean, he, he's had some faux pas along the way. Like the reason he was in Wild Wild West, he actually turned down the role of Neo in The Matrix, feeling that Wild Wild West had the greater capacity to continue on as a franchise. That is what is called an oops moment. Agent K, also known as Kevin Brown, is played by Tommy Lee Jones. Now, we covered Tommy Lee Jones on this show before when I was doing Lonesome Dove. But, again, we'll go back. He was in Fugitive. He was in the Lonesome Dove series. Uh, no Country for Old Men. Batman Forever, where he played Two-Face. Uh, Man of the House. Natural Born Killers. He was in JFK. And he also had a role in the MCU in the Captain America, the First Avenger. Now... This character was in all three movies, but he is uncredited in the third movie, and it's a blink and you miss it, although it is implied by the uh, Barry Sonnenfeld himself that it's the same character. Jack Jeebs, who is an alien-slash-pawn shop owner, played by Tony Shalhoub. He's probably best known for a TV series, Monk, but even before that, he was in the TV series, Wings. He was also in Galaxy Quest, 13 Ghosts and has been in a multitude of Broadway plays and has been nominated for many Tony Awards. Zed, the head of the, NY, of the MIB, I'm sorry, in movies 1 and 2, was played by Rip Torn. Rip Torn passed away in 2019. Rip Torn's not actually his name. His real name is Raul. However, because their last name is Torn, it's kind of a, a family thing that the sons get nicknamed Rip. Rip Torn. Huh? That man has had a very extensive Hollywood career. I'm only going to give you a few here. He was in King of Kings, The Cincinnati Kid. He was in Airplane 2, Cross Creek, RoboCop 3. He appeared in Canadian Bacon. He appeared in Down Periscope. Younger fans will recognize his voice as Zeus from Disney's Hercules. And others will recognize him as the role of Patches O'Houlihan in Dodgeball, a true underdog story. Now I'm going to give you characters that were only in the first movie here. Dr. Laurel Weaver, who eventually becomes Agent J, was played by Linda Fiorentino, who is best known for Vision Quest and Last Seduction. However, she was also in Dogma. The Bug slash the character of Edgar. Now, that one is interesting because Edgar is a human who is killed by the bug and it takes his form. Was played by Vincent D'Onofrio. Vincent D'Onofrio, of course, was in Full Metal Jacket. He was in JFK as well. Ed Wood, The Cell. He also appeared in Jurassic World. Television-wise, he was on Law & Order Criminal Intent for 10 years. He appeared on an episode of Homicide Life on the Street, which actually got him noticed for Law & Order. And also, he appeared in the MCU as Wilson Fisk, a.k.a. Darede uh, the Kingpin, in the Netflix series Daredevil. Siobhan Hogan from Forrest Gump, she played the, bu the bus driver, appeared as Edgar's wife. Mike Nussbaum, who is mostly known for theater work, was the Archelian Prince, Gentle Nussbaum. Uh, there was a frequent co uh, collaborator of Carol Stroykin, who you'll recognize him as Lurch in the Adam Sandler and Adam Sandler Values films. He appeared as well as another quote-unquote Archelian, and I will explain that quote-unquote when I get there. 
Tim Blaney voices Frank the Pug as well. Now, Tim Blaney appears as Frank the Pug in both 1 and 2, and he also returns as Frank the Pug in Men in Black International. I'm not going to talk about Men in Black International because I do have a rule here. I don't cover movies that have only been out for less than five years. And that's simply because I know things get away from people. If you haven't seen a movie that came out in 2019 yet, which that does happen, I'm not going to be the one to spoil something for you. David Cross appears as a desk worker at the morgue. Which is funny because he actually appears in Men in Black 2 as a completely unconnected character. Only appearing in Men in Black 2, the character is Sarlena, who is the villain, is played by Lara Flynn Boyle, who her first film credits actually are in Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Dead Poets Society. However, in both of these movies, her scenes were actually ultimately cut from the theatrical release. She was in Wayne's World, Baby's Day Out, and is probably best known for her television appearances on Twin Peaks and The Practice, which I believe she was in The Practice for, if not the entire run, damn near all of it. The dual character of Scrad and Charlie is played by Johnny Knoxville. Now, I say dual character. In Men in Black 2, there's a character who has like a little alien parasite sticking off his neck that looks exactly the same as him. Uh, Johnny Knoxville, of course, was in Jackass, the series, the movies, Bad Grandpa, but he's had other film appearances. He was in Walking Tall with the Rock. He was in Dukes of Hazard. He was in The Ringer, where he plays a man who pretends to be mentally challenged in order to rig the Special Olympics. There's also a South Park episode about that. And, yeah. Uh, he also voiced Leonardo in the 2014 movie, TMNT. He was replaced for TMNT Out of the Shadows. Laura Vasquez, who played the quote-unquote love interest character for Will Smith in Men in Black 2, was played by Rosario Dawson. Now, Rosario Dawson's one of my favorite actresses. She's been in He Got Game. She was in Josie and the Pussycats, Alexander, Clerks 2, Death Proof. She was in Sin City, A Dame to Kill For. She voiced the character of Wonder Woman in the DC animated movie universe while also playing Night Nurse in the MCU television series, both Daredevil. She also appeared in, I believe, Iron Fist, Jessica Jones, and, of course, Luke Cage. One of the worst movies imaginable she was also in. And that's The Adventures of Pluto Nash. That movie is considered the greatest box office bomb of all time. And one day I do plan on discussing that film. When it came time for casting on that one, Smith, uh, Tommy Lee Jones, Rip Torn, and Blaney all reprised their roles. Patrick Warburton, who's probably best known for older viewers as David Putty in Seinfeld, while also being in a live-action Tick series that came out at that time. Younger viewers are going to recognize his voice as Kronk from The Emperor's New Groove or as Joe Swanson from Family Guy. He appeared as Jay's new partner at the beginning of the film. Michael Jackson and Martha Stewart both cameo as themselves in Men in Black 2. Martha Stewart is an alien. Michael Jackson is, funny enough, human, but he wants to be a member of the Men in Black. In addition to that, Biz Marquis and Nick Cannon appear as an alien at the post office and as an MIB agent, respectively. And as I said earlier, David Cross appears again in a separate role. Now, when it comes time for three, because this one involves time travel, the young Agent K is portrayed spot on, I might add, by Josh Brolin. I mean, Josh Brolin did such a good job in Men in Black 3 of matching Tommy Lee Jones' cadence, his vocabulary, his demeanor, like he did a damn good job as that. Josh Brolin appeared in The Goonies. He was in Mimic, Hollow Man, No Country for Old Men, American Gangster, W, Jonah Hex, 
He was in the remake of True Grit, which is one of my all-time favorite films. He was an old boy. He is going to be in Dune coming out in 2021. And... Probably will be more widely known as the man who portrayed Thanos in the MCU. Which is kind of funny because he has portrayed multiple MCU characters because he also played Cable in Deadpool 2 while also playing a DC character, Jonah Hex. Boris the Animal, the villain of that film, was portrayed by Jermaine Clement. Jermaine Clement is predominantly a voice actor. He has appeared on screen a few times like in Gentleman Broncos and Muppets Most Wanted. He will appear in Avatar 2 and 3. He's part of the very well-known comedy duo, Flight of the Concords. That's Concords spelled C-H-O-R-D-S. However, as far as voices go, you're going to recognize him from Despicable Me, Rio, The Big Friendly Giant, where he played the Flesh Lump Eater. The reason I know that one right off the bat is The Big Friendly Giant was one of my favorite childhood books. And he was also in Moana, where he voiced the giant crab, Tamatoa. Lastly, we have Agent O, who is the new head of the MIB in Men in Black 3, now, by this, they do this because they have his a character of Zed, who was portrayed by Riptorn, is stated to have died off screen. Now, this is because at this time, Riptorn had largely retired from acting and just didn't want to do it anymore. But Agent O, who is the new head of the MIB, is portrayed by Emma Thompson. Emma Thompson was in Howard's End, Sense and Sensibility. She's also appeared in Junior with Arnold Schwarzenegger. I Am Legend, although she was in the same film as him, she and Will Smith have no time together on set or on screen. She was in Stranger Than Fiction. She's most recently been in the, the live-action movie Cruella, which I have problems with that, but that's neither here nor there. She's probably going to be most widely recognized for her role in the Harry Potter series of films where she portrayed Professor Trelawney, the divination professor. Once again for Men in Black 3, both Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones return. Shaloub, like I said, he's uncredited, but you can briefly see him on Coney Island in Men in Black 3. And it's implied that he is, once again, portraying Jack Jeeves. Nicole Scherzinger of the Pussycat Dolls appeared as an alien at the beginning, trying to kind of break him out, uh, Boris the Animal out, rather. Bill Hader, who is probably best known for Saturday Night Live. I mean, he was in Superbad. He was in the most recent, the It, Chapter 2. He played Agent W, also known as Andy Warhol, which is a little joke that I absolutely love. Will Arnett appeared as Agent Double A. And Michael Coulter portrayed James Edwards Jr., who is actually Will Smith's character, Agent A's father, was portrayed by Mike Coulter. Mike Coulter, of course, would go on to portray Luke Cage in the Netflix live-action series. Also, while he does not appear in the film, you can see a billboard that says, See the Amazing Talking Pug at Coney Island. So it's pretty heavily implied that Frank is there. Whew, okay, got through the cast of those three movies. I'm mainly, at this point, I am mainly going to focus on Men in Black 1, but I will talk a little bit about 2 and 3's production at the end. There's just not as much notes available on that one. Men in Black, of course, is based upon a comic series that was written by Lowell Cunningham called The Men in Black. Interesting side note. That comic series now technically is owned by Marvel Comics because the original company that produced it was bought by a company that was eventually bought by Marvel. Now, the comic series doesn't just focus on aliens and extraterrestrial life. It focuses on demons, mutants, zombies, various cryptids like the Bigfoot and things like that. And 
it was also a limited series. Like, it only had a few issues. There's an agent in this called Agent X who discovers that the Men in Black are actually causing many of the problems that are going on in the comic series in order to try and shape the world in their own image. The comic was actually optioned to both Packer and McDonald in 1992 for a film. Ed Solomon was hired to write because they want him to write a more faithful to the comic adaptation for the big screen. It didn't quite happen that way. Barry Sonnenfeld was the first choice of director for the film. However, he was busy with the film Get Shorty at the time. Because they did not want to wait, they approached Les Mayfield. They had heard that his remake of Miracle on 34th Street was getting very well received and was getting good reviews. So they approached him to do it. Then they watched the movie and decided they would rather delay Men in Black to wait for Barry Sonnenfeld to be able to do, work with it. The movie was originally going to largely take place underground, ranging all the way from Kansas to Washington, D.C. and Nevada. That's a lot of area to cover. However, New York was ultimately chosen because New Yorkers were believed, it was believed that they would be more accepting of aliens as merely just odd people. Because, I mean, if you've ever been to New York, it's a weird place. There, the, shit happens there that people just don't bat an eye to because they're so damn used to it. It just, it happens. And it was also thought that, you know, many of New York City's structures resemble ships and UFOs. So it's a good idea to try and balance that in with that. The Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. Barry Sonnefeld liked the look of that so much that the outside of that was chosen to represent the outside of MIB headquarters. Now, when it comes to the casting process for the movie, Tommy Lee Jones was not the first man approached to play Agent K, as is usually the case. Clint Eastwood was originally approached for the role of Agent K. He flat out turned the film down. He had zero interest in doing a movie that involved, in his words, little green men. Tommy Lee Jones was then approached, and he nearly turned it down as well. He was unhappy with the first draft. He said that this first draft, it stinks, it sucks, and it doesn't capture the tone of the comic properly. Steven Spielberg, who was hired on as a script doctor, as well as part of his production company helping with distribution, promised that the script would improve. Jones had so much respect for, David, for Steven Spielberg and his track record that that alone was enough to get him to go, okay, if, the, if you say the script will improve, I will sign on to continue with this. When it came time to cast Agent J, this is where it gets a little interesting. Chris O'Donnell was offered the role first. Chris O'Donnell, for those of you who don't know, portrayed Dick Grayson slash Robin in Joel Schumacher's Batman movies. He turned the role down because he felt that he had already played a similar character and a similar role in that. I mean, he's like, I've already done the newcomer that's got to come on with the old timer and learn the ropes. I don't need to do that anymore. David Schwimmer, TV's Friends, the character of Ross, was also approached, but he turned the role down for two reasons. One, he did so due to scheduling conflicts with the Friends uh, series, which LeBlanc ultimately discovered was an issue when he did Lost in Space. I've also covered that film, and it is also in my library if you want to go check it out. But it wasn't just because of scheduling conflicts. The core six members of the cast of Friends collectively bargained together for their pay scale for every episode. Season one, they all got paid the same. Season two, David Schwimmer and Jennifer Aniston got paid more than the others. But starting with season three, all three of them were like, 
or all six of them are like, no, we're, we're going to bargain this collectively to make sure no character gets paid any more than others. If he had been in this film, he feels that the money that it probably would have gotten in, as well as the recognition, it would have made it a lot more difficult to negotiate for the pay for everybody because they would have felt that either David Schwimmer's being paid too little or they're paying the others too much to try and match up. Barry Sonnenfeld's wife was a huge fan of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Sonnenfeld himself really liked Will Smith's performance in Six Degrees of Separation, and because of those two things, they, he decided to approach Will Smith about portraying Agent J. Smith was also hesitant about this. At this time, he really hadn't done that many huge blockbuster films. I, I may be wrong about this, and if I am, I will correct it at a later time. But I want to say Men in Black is either immediately right after or right before Bad Boys. I think it's right after because Bad Boys gets referenced in Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Steven Spielberg ultimately was responsible for helping Smith sign on with the film. Pretty much all the rest of the other actors signed on easy enough. It was A lot of it was bit parts or momentary things. And Rip Torn loved to work, so he had no problem signing on to do whatever. Same with Vincent D'Onofrio. Principal photography began in March of 1996. There were problems from the get-go. Many last-minute changes happened during the production of this film. I mean, the chase scene at the beginning of the film where Will Smith is chasing down an alien on foot, originally, that was supposed to go through and climax and the Lincoln Center. The New York Philharmonic decided to charge the film for using every single one of their buildings. The Guggenheim Museum did not care and would not charge, so the Guggenheim Museum is what ended up being the ultimate final destination for that chase scene. And, I mean, the aliens were constantly getting redesigned. It just it was a problem. There were minor script rewrites here and there as well, as well as a couple of major ones that I'll get to in a moment. Five months into the shoot, they are nearing the end. Sonnenfeld decided that he did not like the way the ending was. He felt that it was unexciting and lacked the action and the tone of the rest of the movie and thus wanted to film something different. Now, I don't mind discussing this part because it didn't end up happening. The original planned ending of the film was Agent J and the Bug having a humorous existential debate that would have resulted in a relatively pain-free climax. They felt that it, because of the just sudden change from the action, chase scenes, shooting down ships and everything, we're going to talk this out. They felt that it just didn't work, and they felt that uh, target audiences and test audiences probably would receive it badly. They went through five different potential replacement ending ideas. Now, of those five, the only one that they've ever openly discussed was that the Laurel character would have been neuralized, Agent K would have remained with Men in Black, and it just would have moved on from there. They ultimately ended up going with the final ending they did, involving a big fight scene with the bug, which in and of itself created some issues. Rick Baker, who is probably best known for doing the prosthetics for American Werewolf in London, I can't say enough good about that film, had created a detailed animatronic bug that could be m manipulated and had some puppetry in it in order to properly do the conversation with Jay. Not practical for a big fight scene. They had to go with CGI and make it look more like a real cockroach, as well as add in some extra roars and squeals and whatnot. It cost them $4.5 million just for that one scene alone. 
I mentioned earlier that there were some script changes in the film. They were really minor during production. It's during post-production that issues really ramped up on this. The plot involving the little tiny galaxy that hangs around the cat's neck in Men in Black. Because the whole concept of the first movie is about training a, par- training a replacement and a, a mission happens to pop up where there's potentially danger to the planet. Originally, the Archelian species would have been handing over that galaxy to the Balshan species in order to end a war that had been going on for centuries. The bugs didn't like this because they feed on the casualties. They decide they want to steal the galaxy in order to prolong the war. Carol Stroykin's tall alien character was a ballship. Nussbaum's character was a shorter, more portly-looking human being, was a member of the Archelian race. They had to change the subtitles in the diner scene to reflect them both being Archelians and just having a lunch and discussing things with each other. They changed images on the MIB main computers at headquarters. And Tim Blaney actually re-recorded Frank the Pug's dialogue in order to essentially cut the Balshans completely from the plot. This ultimately changes how the ending of the movie is going as well. Because it went from the Earth being potentially collateral damage in a war between the Archelians and the Balshans to it just being a target to prevent the bugs from getting the galaxy. All that that I just said had to be done two weeks before post-production ended on this film. Two weeks. Because of that, the whole subplot with the Balshans and everything else still exists in the novelization, which I plan on getting my hands on. Production designed the headquarters of Men in Black to look like it was straight out of the 60s. It took a lot of inspiration from that because that's when Men in Black was founded. You look at the way the chairs look, the lights look, a lot of fixtures very closely resemble modern furniture, in air quotes, that they had in 60s movies, promotional images, commercials, etc. They try to sell us these are the comfortable things and they feel like crap to sit in. They cited specifically the architect Iro, I'm going to go ahead and pronounce, apologize right now if I mispronounce this, because Finnish is not my native language, Ero Sanerinen, Ero Sarinen, one of those two. It's, I apologize, again, Finnish is not my native language. The man designed the terminal at JFK International. They directly cite him as reference to how they wanted to make the headquarters look like aliens could both arrive and depart from Men in Black's headquarters in New York. Tommy Lee Jones, at at one point in the movie, says that there are over 1,200 aliens living on Earth at any given time, most of them right here in New York City. Because in New York City, it's where you're not going to stand out. Rick Baker was approached for effects, prosthetics, and animatronics for it, including, again, the, cock, the giant bug, which didn't get used. And some of the things that he changed included changing Gentle Rosenberg. I'm sorry, it's not Gentle Nussbaum. Mike Nussbaum played Gentle Rosenberg. Changing Rosenberg's alien form, because the Archelian form was initially just going to be when you pull the ear and the face opens up, it's nothing but light. He changed that to make it a little bit more accessible for fans and audiences to watch. He changed it into a tiny little alien living inside of the head of the, of the creature. 
He called it the most complex production in his entire career. He said that for this film alone, he did more sketches than all of his prior movies combined. And everything he did needed the approval of both Barry Sonnenfeld and Steven Spielberg. The problem with that was that they both liked individual things about certain aliens. Somebody, uh, Sonnenfeld liked the head of this alien. Well, Spielberg liked the body of this alien. Let's throw those together, which, of course, is a logistical nightmare for someone who is designing costumes and makeup and whatnot. Because of that, the aliens' designs changed frequently. You'll see some aliens just don't have eyes. Uh, none of the aliens were initially supposed to have eyes, but, the, but literally after he had started developing this, Sonnen feels like, question, how does he see if he doesn't have eyes? we got to design some eyes for him. So it had to go back and do that. And ultimately, Industrial Lights and Magic did the visual effects and the CGI. I have covered Industrial Lights and Magic before because they've done a lot of the CGI for a lot of the films that I have covered. Other than that, I mean, with, as crazy as it sounds, despite all those issues, production went relatively smoothly. I know it doesn't sound like it would have, but... I mean, shooting was no issue. The, the actors had no problems. Danny Elfman did the score for the film, which was actually nominated for an Academy Award. I love the score of Men in Black. The orchestral music that you hear, it's, it's very, it builds and it does a very good job of building. Will Smith uh, wrote a song to go along with the film called The Men in Black, the MIB. A music video is included at the end of the VHS release of Men in Black and is in the extras on the DVD release of Men in Black. Elvis did a cover called of the song Promised Land. It was included in the chase scene where they go through the underground tunnel and they go, the car gets modified and they go on the roof. Will Smith's dance to the song Men in Black, I actually know how to do that dance. It's been many years since I've done it. I would try it, but... I'm not doing it in front of people unless I know that I can do the whole thing still accurately. When it came time to release the film, for marketing purposes, they had over 30 licensees to help out with marketing. Some of the more notable ones include Galoob, which is... Galoob did a lot of action figures for movies back in the 90s and early 2000s. Uh, Ray-Ban did a $5 to $10 million television campaign, and their sunglasses are prominently featured in the film. Also, Procter & Gamble Head & Shoulders. They did some uh, advertising for the film as well, saying that we keep the black in Men in Black. <clears throat> There's also been an official comic book adaptation, a 3D first-person shooter game for both PC and the PlayStation, which was very poorly received. I can actually remember trying to play it on PlayStation when I was a child and not enjoying it very much at all. In addition to the PlayStation game, they actually made a tabletop role-playing game as well. Uh, the home video release of the film actually came with a pair of fake... <clears throat> I say fake. Uh, imitation would be the better word. Basically, Ray-Ban made some cheap sunglasses to go along with the release on this. Probably the biggest thing to come out of the Men in Black movie, as far as extended pop culture thing or anything like that for for children especially the animated series the men in black i absolutely loved the animated series it was on kids wb every saturday morning 
To this day, I still remember the theme song. I remember multiple storylines from the TV series. I just, I, I loved that show. It ran, landed for, lasted for three years. It ran from 1998 through 2001. I mean, they had toys that came out of both the TV show and the movie. There were toys that came out in McDonald's. My brother and I had toy neuralizers, some of the toy guns. Uh, my grandmother got them for us. It was, it, it was a, it produced a lot of merchandise. And one day I actually do plan on talking about the TV series. And I'll explain that a little bit better when I get towards the end of the episode. When it came time for the box office and critical reception, it made $250.6 million in the U.S., $338.7 million overseas for a grand total of 500 some odd million. Despite this, to this day, Sony claims the film has never actually turned a profit. There is probably a lot of reasons behind that. Um, mostly because of Hollywood inflation, and I just, I don't understand how a film that spawned an entire fr media franchise, it made over a half a billion dollars in 1997. I don't understand how that can have not turned a profit. So, if anybody can ever make sense of that, please let me know how. Siskel gave it three and a half stars out of four, found it to be smart, funny, and hip. Eber gave it three out of four, finding the humor and the creature designs to be wonderful. And it actually won the Oscar for the bet for best makeup. It had some detractors who thought that it was kind of a slog at times, and others who felt that it was kind of stupid summer movie, just turn off your brain and watch kind of thing. But overall, it's generally positively received. And it actually made it on multiple AFI lists, nominated for 100 Years, 100 Laughs, uh, 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains. J and K were both nominated for the, for the heroes. 100 Years, 100 Top Songs, Men in Black. 100 Years, 100 Top Quotes. When Will Smith, as Agent J, comes out of the locker room for the first time in the suit with the sunglasses and says, you know the difference between you and me is? I make this look good. That made it on the Top 100 Quotes, at least nominated. And, of course, the Top 10, Top 10 Films, Sci-Fi Genre. I mentioned earlier that I was going to talk a little bit more about the sequel's production, and I will. Uh, number two... Barry Sonnenfeld was not pleased that the studio mandated there be a love story kind of put into that. He also didn't really like all the pop culture references that were put in. I mean, there was no real difficulties with the casting process. Uh, writing was also fairly smooth. Um, there was something that they had to edit out and change. At the climax of Men in Black 2, the initial ending was going to have Sarlena in an attempt to get what she was after the whole time, release or hit a button or flip a switch or in some way cause the tops of the World Trade Center to open up and millions of alien craft were supposed to come pouring out and get all shot down as well as the tops of the building getting damaged. Obviously, given what happened in September of 2001, that needed to be changed. They also did a couple things to enhance the sounds of some of the guns and the neuralizer. Um, three was initially pitched during the production of two. But it was a very drawn-out process. I mean, Sony didn't want Sonnenfield to direct it. Eventually that still happened. There were a lot of rewrites that happened with three. Rick Baker returned to it. It 
and actually even began filming before it was done being written. However, I said earlier that while it was made on a bigger budget and made more money, that shouldn't really balance out. When it was made, that was after tax credits and whatnot had come into play with filmmaking. And so they were able to make a substantial amount back on it from taxes. So technically, Men in Black 3 turned a better profit than what it initially shows. Uh, I don't have enough negative things in me to say about 2. 3 is arguably a little less good than 2 was. However, funny story about Men in Black 3. I was on a flight from Houston to Denver to go visit some family that lived in Idaho. And the in-flight movie was Men in Black 3. Men in Black 3 wasn't available on DVD or anything like that yet. So I happily sat down and watched it. <laughs> um, I saw the first Men in Black movie. The first time I saw that was at a drive-in movie theater, which I know I mentioned this last week, but I will mention it again, and I will mention it. It is a hill I am willing to die on. Drive-in movie theaters absolutely should, have made it, should make a comeback especially living in a time where we had this COVID pandemic, I would have thought that kind of thing would have immediately came back in vogue. But here nor there, um, I want to touch on something here. Uh, with Agent J, David Schwimmer turning that down, I have spoken to several different people who believe that the movie probably would not have been as successful if it had not been Will Smith, if it had been David Schwimmer. Let's set aside the massive fan cultural phenomenon that was Friends in the 90s. Let's just take that completely out of the equation. While David Schwimmer is predominantly known for doing theater work as well as some voice acting and directing, um, David Schwimmer's a hell of an actor. It is a shame that he is largely pigeonholed as Ross. Go watch his performance in Band of Brothers. Uh, he had a nice little dopey comedic role in the movie The Paul Bearer, which that movie's terrible, but it's not because of him. And even as of late, he appeared on American Crime Story, where he played Robert Kardashian. David Schwimmer's a hell of an actor. He's got great range. He's got great comedic timing. And honestly, if you factor that in with the fact that Friends was a massive cultural phenomenon, and still is to this day... If he had appeared in that movie as Agent J, I still think the movie would have been just as successful. I don't think it would have hurt Will Smith's career in any way, shape, or form had he not been in Men in Black. Because shortly after Men in Black, he was in Independence Day. So, I don't know. It's just it's one of those things that I feel like... It, it's something that... One of those little what-ifs on casting that I don't think would have made it bad. I think it would have made it, it would have been just as good, if not better. And I think David Schwimmer would have got along just fine with the rest of the cast. Ultimately, Tommy Lee Jones, uh, Barry Sonnenfeld said he was a joy to watch on set because you'd be recording him and he'd be doing a great job. And then you'd have to stop and go, Tommy, Tommy, we're going to put the laser sound effects in. We don't need you to do them. Like he would point the gun and make it go pew or make a laser sound. It's just like a giant child, basically. Um, the four, the worm characters, I'm not really talking about them too much because they're pure comedic relief and it's, it's not something that I just, it, the movie already had comedy. It didn't need added extra comedy. If I do have any complaint about men in black two, it is the much more heavy involvement of the worms. I liked them in the first one because they fit their little 
niche as being always in the coffee section of the building. Now, Men in Black, of course, has caused a lot of spinoff shit. Not just with actual movies, but it's been referenced in other forms of pop culture. I believe it's been referenced in all four scary movie movies as well. But something that gets kind of lost in lost in the shuffle that I have not met too many other people that remember. Years ago, there was a channel called ABC Family. It Either it became or it was originally Fox Family before that. ABC Family would show things like Augie and the Cockroaches, the new Adams Family, Big Wolf on Campus, which is a much better teenager werewolf thing than Teen Wolf, the TV series, could ever hope to be. Uh, one of the things that was on ABC Family was an original movie called Men in White. And it was 100% a spoof of Men in Black. But the two characters were garbage men that were constrained into helping out with a, a government agency called the Men in White. And the reason that that has always stuck with me, one, it's a terrible movie. I found it recently rewatched it. It's god-awful. But um, one of the two Men in White is Biff from Back to the Future. And I just, I have, uh, that's always stuck in my mind. It's hilarious that he was able to take and poke fun at himself in that way. So, now, I said earlier that I would love to talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, about the Men in Black TV series at length and that eventually I will. Last week, I said that I was toying with the idea of doing a kind of midweek show every now and then. I'm going to go ahead and do that. It's not going to, probably not going to be for a couple of weeks. And I'll make an announcement for it on the Facebook page, which if you haven't checked out the Facebook page, I'm not extremely active on it, and I do apologize for that. But that is where more episode announcements and things like that do tend to pop up. Um, the, the Facebook page is, of course, Kid Kong at the Movies, same typed out format as the show. I, it's going to be called Kid Kong Reviews, and basically what I'm going to do, I'm not really going to focus on production. Uh, for Kid Kong Reviews, which episodes will, will probably drop on Thursdays, and again, it's not going to be everything. It's going to be like once a month, maybe, something like that. I'm going to go back and rewatch episodes because YouTube is a wonderful thing and has it, and rewatch episodes of shows or little movies, like favorite TV movies that I love, and it's basically just going to be me uh, talking about my review on these films. Now, periodically, I may actually have a guest on with these because the beautiful thing about doing that is I can watch it with somebody and then, because I have seen it before, I can have like a discussion about it, similar to what I did with the actor showcase with Bart the Bear. I may have Cal the Kaiju guy come back on. I have another friend of mine who does Kung Fu-related podcasts. I might have him on as well. And it's just something that would be fun to do. And eventually, when I do it, uh, most likely the first episode will actually focus on the season 8 of Alvin and the Chipmunks uh, TV series from the 80s called Chipmunks Go to the Movies. What better way to start? And what I will probably do with that is I will probably do multiple episodes about each individual television series because there are different arcs. And, I mean, with Alvin and the Chipmunks Go to the Movies, that's probably the easiest one to do that about because they spoof different movies. Batmunk. Indiana, uh, 
which is a Batman movie. They do one on Indiana Jones. They do one on RoboCop called RoboMonk, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I can cover other shows that I grew up loving like Beast Wars, which is a spinoff of Transformers. Metabots, which was part of Fox Kids, the Fox Box thing that they did where they tried to introduce animated younger fans of it. I may eventually discuss Dragon Ball. Who knows? For those of you who don't know, I am a massive lifelong fan of Dragon Ball to the point that I actually have a Dragon Ball tattoo. But I'm getting off topic. I'm digressing on this. This will come within a couple of weeks. I will probably announce the first episode after I get done with next week's episode. Next week, I'm going to take a stab at a 1995 video game adaptation that nostalgia tells people is a fantastic movie. It is not a fantastic movie. It is not even a good adaptation of the video game. If you haven't guessed it yet, I'm going to be talking about 1995's Mortal Kombat. There's a fair bit more research going into this episode than usual, simply because I want to go into... Re I've never been a huge fan of the Mortal Kombat video games. I was much more a fan of Soul Calibur. But with the Mortal Kombat video games, there's an established lore and whatnot with the characters, their powers, etc., 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 etc. And I want to talk about the differences between what you've got on that screen versus what was in this game. And I'm actually going to enlist the help of my friend, Cal the Kaiju Guy, because he's the biggest Mortal Kombat fan I think I've ever met. And he can school me night and day on character lore. So I'm going to be discussing it with him a lot more in the lead up. And I will cover that movie. I can't wait for that. So next week when I see you, it'll be Mortal Kombat. And I'll also announce Kid Kong Reviews, first episode that'll come out. So until then, this has been Kid Kong at the Movies talking about Men in Black. Men in Black, I am Kid Kong. I will see you at the movies. Have a good day, folks.